Does investing in a company with a social agenda necessarily mean I have to accept lower financial returns? So I think before this 2007 meeting, yes, because what was happening was it was viewed as patient capital or concessionary financing. But what this group of investors and we as an advisor and partner to them concluded is that it would always remain a niche field on the sidelines unless it could produce at least at benchmark or exceed benchmark returns. And that is absolutely what we've been seeing. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I'm very pleased that you're here today. We are going to talk today about impact investing. Can money be used to make the world a better place? And if so, how? Also, what can investors large and small do to influence the behavior of big global corporations? How can we help corporations want and decide to be better global and local citizens? We'll jump into that in just a second. But first, I want to tell you that this week's episode is brought to you by Masterworks, the alternative investing world's only billion-dollar platform Go to masterworks.io slash crazy money to learn how you can invest in shares of blue chip art. Masterworks.io slash crazy money. I also want to say welcome to the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Group on Facebook. This week's lucky three would be Rich Ordonia, Amy Walter Beisel, and Greg Thompson. Thanks for joining the conversation. I put stuff in there I think you all might find interesting and ask you to engage in conversation with me and, and the others in there. I posted just today the link to my Cheer Up Grumpy playlist on Spotify that I mentioned in last week's episode with Dr. Ethan Cross. When I'm feeling down and blue, I'll click on that link, listen to my playlist, and it makes me feel better. And if you listen to it, you'll no doubt recognize that I haven't listened to new music since 1992. So check it out. If you're new to Crazy Money, folks, I sure would appreciate it if you take a few minutes to follow and or subscribe, depending upon how your podcast app describes it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, hit that plus button in your app. And please do me the favor of leaving a five-star review and some kind words that come to mind are intelligent, interesting, fun, humble, funny, things like that. You know, throw those words in there. That would be helpful so that other people who aren't familiar with Crazy Money know that we produce high-quality conversations very much like the one we had this week about impact investing. Here's how we're going to do this. I spoke to three people with very different perspectives on the world of money and investing. The first one is Dr. Judith Roden, who is an author of a book called Making Money Moral, How a New Wave of Visionaries is Linking Purpose and Profit. The second one is Joan King Salwin, who is the CEO of Blue Ocean Barnes. And I don't want to steal her thunder, but what they do at Blue Ocean Barnes has very much to do with improving the negative impact of cows on the environment. And that is a pretty big problem, as she'll explain. Lastly, and definitely not leastly, is Peter van der Hoch from the Dutch Pension Fund Agreement on International Responsible Investment. Peter has spent much of his career fighting for a more sustainable economy, and he has some very interesting insights as to how the stakeholders in the investing world can help influence corporate behavior. So three great panelists. Let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Judith Roden since we're going to kick it off with her. She is the former president of both the Rockefeller Foundation and the University of Pennsylvania, where she was the first woman to permanently lead an Ivy League institution. She's the author of several books, including Making Money Moral, which I just mentioned, and The Power of Impact Investing. Having served on the boards of many corporations, including Citigroup, Comcast, NBC, Universal, Young and Rubicum, 
the New York Stock Exchange, and many others. Judith knows how these organizations work, how they're motivated, and what can be done to help influence their behavior. Judith earned a BA from the University of Pennsylvania, her PhD from Columbia, and did a postdoctoral fellowship at UC Irvine. She has also received honorary degrees from Johns Hopkins, Dartmouth, and 16 other institutions. The list of Judith's professional accomplishments and civic accolades is literally too long to read here. I mean, it's like pages. It's incredible. So suffice to say, she has had an illustrious career, and she is using all that credibility these days to help people think about how good capitalism can be. I'm honored she took the time to speak with us. This, friends, is Dr. Judith Roden. Dr. Judith Roden, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Now, I've just read your introduction separately, so I won't embarrass you with the dozens or hundreds of accolades and prestigious positions that you've held over the years. But what's as interesting as the quality of all your accomplishments is the range of your accomplishments. How does one go from studying neurobiology to advocating for conscious capitalism? <laughs> it does seem like a rather circuitous and surprising route, but it actually isn't. So when I was a kid, I always loved reading science fiction or mystery novels. And so it wasn't a surprise in a way to me or my family that I chose going into research because research is really about trying to understand and explain something and get to the fundamental basis for why things happen and how they happen. And I had a long research career, as you know, and I got, I think, to a point where I really felt, and this especially gave me the opportunity to feel that way when I became a chief executive, that it wasn't only about understanding and explaining, that it also had to be about doing. And so the same search, the same sort of innovative innovation urge led to an effort to find new ways of doing things, of innovating, of solving really big thorny problems, of doing old things in new ways, which is another part of what innovation really is. And finding ways to unleash private capital for social good was a piece of that journey. It really was that same question. How can you, there isn't enough money in the world in philanthropy or in government development funds to solve all the world's social and environmental problems. There just isn't. So how do you put to work the trillions of dollars in private capital that can partner to solve some of these big problems? So you see, it was really that same kind of problem-solving urge but to find new ways of solving problems. Did your work specifically in this area begin at Rockefeller Foundation? Yes. So at Penn, we worked on other big thorny problems. Undergraduates, the biggest problem of all. (laughs) Not for us. Um, We were in a very disadvantaged neighborhood that we had to really create and innovate new ways to transform, which we were able to do. And we had a crisis in healthcare and we were the largest healthcare provider and we owned all our hospitals and nursing homes and physician practices and lost $90 million in the first year when the Balanced Budget Act took away graduate medical education reimbursement. So there were really big thorny problems. But when I got to Rockefeller and began to work on global development, 
it was really clear that what I just expressed, that there just really wasn't enough money, no matter how rich you were, you know, whether you were the richest foundation like the Gates Foundation or even the richest country. And so how does private capital come into play? And I had been on so many public company boards. I understood how companies operated. But I also saw a broader world of private capital that could be unleashed, venture capital and private equity and real estate investment trusts and the whole bond market, which could be transformed. And so that's really when we started this work. Do you consider yourself a capitalist? Oh, absolutely. But I think I'm a liberated capitalist, if you will, because I think capitalism was really captured by the Milton Friedman notion that it really was shareholder primacy, short term returns, you know, maximize return at all costs to kind of paraphrase what I think the Friedman philosophy really was. And I do think that over the last 20 years or so, Many, we, but many, many others started to question that view of capitalism. A, did it have to be so short term? B, were shareholders the only stakeholders? Or should you be worrying about the workers, the customers, the suppliers, and even the environment as a stakeholder? And as the discussions grew really in global conversations, whether it was at Davos or a variety of other places, I think many of us came to believe that capitalism needed to be reframed and modernized for the world now, which is a very different world than it was 50 years ago when Milton Friedman formulated this idea. But don't you think Friedman wouldn't have agreed that the costs, the externalities that business impose on the world should be borne by the business. I wouldn't argue on his conclusion about the shareholder, but I don't think he would say that businesses have the right to pollute and not bear that cost. Yes, I agree with that, although that's how it was interpreted, because our natural resources have been seen by business as a free resource whether it's air or water. And we, governments, actually, haven't imposed either taxes or prices on the cost of natural resources or on biodiversity more broadly. And that's what started to be impacted most initially by the behavior of corporations inadvertently, I think. You know, they respond to market forces and pricing. But I do think, Paul, that What's happened now is that both investors and businesses have come to understand that if they ever could, they no longer can outrun social and environmental risk. It simply isn't possible anymore. There are a couple of phrases you hear when you're talking about businesses doing social good and the investor, big or small's opportunity to use their money to vote their values. The two ones I'm thinking of specifically are impact investing and ESG. I wonder if you could sort of break down what those are generally and how they interrelate. Impact investing is a term that was actually coined at a conference that Rockefeller hosted in 2007, where a group of investors came together to really ask, would it be possible to have a double or triple bottom line return? Could you yield a financial return? that was 
benchmarked against an asset class that was similar, not an impact investment asset class, but if it was a bond against a bond asset class, if it was a public equity against a traditional public equity benchmark. So nothing um, that would make it seem exceptional in the degree of financial return that it could provide, but that it would also be able to provide social and environmental return. And that field initially was kind of niche. It was largely small impact funds, high net worth individuals, family offices, but that field has exploded. And so there are trillions of dollars under management in the sort of impact category. But what also started to explode was evaluation of either public equities or public equity funds like exchange traded funds. And that's where ESG has been a more familiar label. It really is either in the bonds or in the public equity, public bonds or the public equity side. And they're clearly interrelated. They're both evaluating a broader range of impacts than merely financial return. E stands for environmental. So they're looking at CO2 emissions, they're looking at uh, water usage, a variety of things that have to do with environmental impact. S has been traditionally both worker treatment and also diversity has come into the S category, both at the board level and at the employee level. And then G is governance, more traditional governance metrics. You know, what are the board practices? What are the accounting practices? Do they follow standards and the like? Impact is a broader array of measures and tends to be used not only in the goals, which is how ESG is measured, what is the company or the fund's stated goals, but impact is also measured in the outcomes, which makes it, I think, fundamentally harder to achieve, but in my view, a more important variable because it's not only in the diligence phase, but it's also measuring those outcomes as they're being produced over time. So, of course, you know, we all want a more sustainable planet, but Judith, I love money and I need money to help pay my bills. So does investing in a company with a social agenda necessarily mean I have to accept lower financial returns? So I think before this 2007 meeting, yes, because what was happening was it was viewed as patient capital or concessionary financing. But what this group of investors and we as an advisor and partner to them concluded is that it would always remain a niche field on the sidelines unless it could produce at least at benchmark or exceed benchmark returns. And that is absolutely what we've been seeing. So if you look at the Morgan Stanley ratings of mutual funds, um, those labeled ESG or those not, but in the same categories, they are doing at or better than benchmark in the last time they looked, which was, I think, 2005 to 2019, and probably their more current ones. Um, Bloomberg is finding the same thing, that they are often uh, in the top quartile, but they're certainly in the top half of performance. So if I'm a traditional investor, I'm looking to meet or exceed benchmarks, um, which is all my financial advisor is currently doing, frankly, (laughs) producing a little more alpha maybe, but not, you know, mega, then it is now 
absolutely possible to invest in ESG or invest in impact and yield outsized returns on the financial side as well as on the impact side. Absolutely possible. What are some examples of companies or big municipal projects that are both a big financial win and a big social win? So I won't talk about municipal projects because I really think that's a very narrow kind of financing. That's the typical municipal bond um, financing that we've been able to access, you know, governments have been able to access for a long time. But let's talk about some companies because there's so much excitement in terms of what's going on here. And, And I talk about several of these in the book. Energy, alternative energy is one of the earliest and it's one of the most obvious. And certainly we're in, you know, the week of COP26. And so everybody's mind is on climate change and the environment. But in about 2011 or 12, the Danish pension fund wanted really to change their portfolio into more environmentally responsible investing. And where did that come from? When you say they wanted to, does that come from the citizens or who's determining what happens with the pension fund? So that is such an important question because I think the Scandinavian and Japanese pension funds came to this conclusion in about 2009 or 10. And they decided that after all, a pension fund is for the social welfare and the health of their citizens. That's why you have a pension fund. They manage billions and billions of dollars of employees' retirement funds. They have a high degree of responsibility to get returns to pay the the pensioners that rely on this income, right? They absolutely do. In fact, the Japanese pension fund that was the thought leader here, GPIF, is the largest pension fund in Japan. And the Scandinavian pension funds, the Norwegians, the Danes, they were really ahead of the game in being thought leaders because they saw this added responsibility as they really correctly evaluated the purpose of having a pension fund, that it wasn't enough money only, that it was really about one's quality of life with which to spend the money that the pension was providing. And if the environment was polluted and if there was social unrest, then wouldn't the quality of one's life be uh, diminished? And so It didn't really come from the citizens. I think it really came from the pension fund leaders, although obviously there's a zeitgeist in these kinds of things as people started thinking about it, too. And, you know, we saw the rise of conscious consumerism when I was president of Penn. The students protested because they didn't want us to use athletic gear that was produced in sweatshops in Bangladesh. And those millennials really who now control trillions of spending dollars started to create momentum around these issues as well. And they get a lot of credit for it. So to give you just that example, and then I want to quickly do two others because I really want to show what the range is here. So the Danish pension fund partnered with Denmark Oil and Gas that actually together decided they should move off fossil fuels to alternative energy. They worked out a deal where the pension fund would finance through loans the building of wind plants for electricity, for energy production, for electricity. 
And but they had a requirement to get a certain return each year in terms of their actuarial data and the pension obligations. So the company guaranteed that if the cost of electricity went below that number, they would meet that number out of their profits. But if the cost of electricity exceeded that number, that they would get a disproportionate share of the profit. And with that agreement, they built the first of several. Orsted, as the company changed its name to, is now the largest wind producer in Europe. So they have had mega impact in terms of what they've been able to do. Shift to a REIT, a real estate investment trust. Bobby Turner, who was an investor in real estate, partnered with Magic Johnson, the basketball legend, both of whom were really concerned about the cost of affordable housing in L.A. And, you know, the people we celebrated last year, the nurses, the service workers, the frontline police officers, they are people who spend a disproportionate amount of their income on housing relative to people like me. And so they started a REIT, got a a huge group of investors, and they built or rehabbed housing and made it affordable, attractive, and sustainable. They started reaping such significant profits that they then used new funds that they generated to uh, build companies that actually built the affordable housing and on-site provided childcare, healthcare, a variety of other kinds of service programs. And when I interviewed Bobby Turner for the book, he said, now I have 20 years of data and I am telling you through my data that I can produce double digit returns for my investors and create this high degree of social impact. And then quickly, one more in the developing world. And that is a great example is good life pharmacies. So in East Africa, there are very few health workers, very, very few doctors and very poor health care. And so often the first place somebody will go is a pharmacy. Good life was a set of pharmacies. Leapfrog Capital invested in them in order to bring them to scale. Now, they were a, a venture capital firm. And as you know, venture capital often works with management to help them scale and expand. And so they are now, they created modular pharmacies all over East Africa. They are the largest pharmacy provider in all of Sub-Saharan Africa outside of South Africa. And in several of those modular facilities, many of which are in gas stations in rural areas, They provide nutrition counseling. They provide telemedicine. I visited a couple of them, and I can tell you that they are getting better health care than many places in New York that I have visited. So what's the revenue model for them? Well, they're charging for all of the services, the pharmacy. There's very little insurance, Mm -hmm. although whenever there's an insurer, they will actually connect the customer to the insurer. But the revenue model is scale and payment for every service provided and a very, very, very low cost of provision. So the margins are quite significant. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. With the S&P 500 trading at its highest valuation since the dot-com bubble and inflation rising, finding promising investments is harder than ever. So if you're like me, you're probably wondering where to put that extra 100K right now. 
Thankfully, financial experts have a potential solution, alternative assets like art. In fact, 85% of wealth managers recommend offering art to their clients, according to Deloitte. And it makes sense why, because contemporary art prices appreciated 14% annually on average from 1995 to 2020, with almost no correlation to public equities. Strong, consistent, uncorrelated performance? Sign me up, folks. And now you can invest in high-end art without spending a fortune, thanks to Masterworks. They're the investment platform worth over $1 billion that lets you invest in multi-million dollar paintings similar to a company stock. You're buying a share of a painting, just like you're buying a share of a company when you buy stock. Some of their offerings have sold out in hours, so don't wait. And early investors already saw a 32% annualized return in 2020. Luckily, I partnered with them to get you all VIP passes to skip to the front of the line. Just go to masterworks.io slash crazy money for priority access. That's masterworks.io slash crazy money. Go poke around. See the kinds of paintings you can buy. What would you buy if you could buy a share of any artwork? What's the artist? Not just the financial return you're looking for, but who would you want to associate with? Banksy, Monet, Keith Haring. How about Basquiat? I think I'd like, I want to own a Basquiat, man. That's what I want. So go to masterworks.io slash crazy money. I will see you there. Make sure you see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. And now back to the show. We're back. Thank you, sponsor. We're back. Hey, sponsor. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So capitalism can be harnessed in positive ways to address some of the world's biggest problems, but it can't solve every problem. What are the segments or what are the sectors where you believe capitalism can bring money and will to the table to change things for the better? And where can't it do that? There was actually a great study in 2017 that looked at all the UN sustainable development goals. And, you know, that's seen as the big sort of development opportunity that governments should be funding. But if you actually look at them, whether it's uh, food security or water security, solving water scarcity or housing or education, all of those have investable propositions as this study by a group of pension funds actually concluded. So there are areas in which that's not the case. Domestic violence or sexual trafficking or achieving peace between countries. But surprisingly, of all the SDGs, uh, the largest segment of them was indeed investable. So I would say there's always going to be a category for philanthropy, things where you can't create a business model. There's that middle category of ESG and impact investing. And then there's the other side, which is I'm not saying we shouldn't do financial only investing. There's always going to be a category, whether it's for some investors or for some areas where that is a smarter investment. All I'm saying is that the middle is really big, that it's producing a lot of return for its investors. And that wouldn't you want two bangs for the buck rather than one, if you could? That's essentially what it's providing. And so some of these categories would be like energy, housing, sustainable farming. In fact, at the end of this episode, I have a brief interview with a woman who is the CEO of a company called Blue Ocean Barns, which is creating, they take red seaweed that has algae in it and they add it to cattle feed and it reduces methane emissions by 50 to 80%. Exactly. Great impact and a huge addressable market, 
right? Well, that's the thing. The markets are huge. Investing in desalinization plants could be a huge win for those who are concerned about water scarcity for potable water all over the world. There was just an interesting article last week that with all of the drought in California, the only region that isn't suffering is San Diego because they built 15 years ago these amazing desalinization plants. So all of these companies that are really all over the marketplace now because there's so much entrepreneurship and so much creativity and so much worry about what's happening in the world and can capitalism help to fix it rather than just make it worse is creating this panoply of companies that are part of the solution to the world's problems. Well, let's say my listener is interested in rethinking his or her portfolio and is saying, okay, great, Judith, that you've sold me. This is a great opportunity for me as a human being and as a financial entity. But I looked at the different ESG ratings agencies and their methodologies are all over the place to the extent where two out of three agencies rated Exxon higher than Tesla. So how does the average investor get the right data they need to make sure their investments are delivering social good? Change doesn't happen in a linear fashion. (laughs) Um, We all know that. And I think the enthusiasm around this kind of investing has actually overtaken the measurement part of this formula at the moment. And so there's a billion dollars a year being spent on impact or ESG ratings, which is just sort of mind numbing to think of it and shows you that there are way, way too many. So what's happening now, I think, is very heartening. We're seeing a lot of efforts towards consolidation. Some are being led by academic institutions, some by business groups like the World Economic Forum or the Business Roundtable, and some by governments, a really interesting one that the G20 just committed to. So we will see consolidation. With that, we will see more transparency and more clarity so that you won't have those weird anomalies where if you count E more, then obviously you're going to rate Tesla higher. If you count G more, you're going to rate Exxon higher. This study was done in 2017 when Elon Musk was all over the place. The SEC was all over him. He had a terrible you know, board. Etc. So obviously he got way dinged on G, but this will change. And also, as I said earlier, the metrics will start to give you more line of sight on the outcomes, not just the promises. So that's what, as a good investor and a careful investor, you really will need. According to Morningstar, there's $3 billion per day seeking out new ways to be allocated towards socially conscious companies. Are there enough good investments in this space to satisfy that demand? So I would say that number is a 2020 anomaly. What happened in 2020 was there was so much concern around the pandemic and so much attention to social justice and environmental justice. And the ESG returns looked better in the first half of the year than the other returns did until the market rewrited itself. All of that pushed this flooding into the market. I don't know whether there's enough, but I am confident that there will be a pullback. 
so that the demand side and the supply side will rewrite by 2022. I'm really quite sure of that. Along those lines, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal just recently saying that the greenium, which is the premium people will pay for eco-friendly brands, is shrinking. Is that related to what you were just saying? I think it's shrinking a bit for two reasons. Yes, because the supply hasn't, you know, isn't fulfilling all of the demands. So that's one reason. The second reason is the metrics. There is a lot of concern around greenwashing, which is the term, you know, to make everything sound like it's ESG or environmentally friendly. So I think that's reducing the greenium. And I also think that there was a flooding last year of government bonds to recover from the pandemic that went into this space. Social impact bonds, resilience bonds, green bonds, blue bonds. And we're not seeing the central banks where governments issue nearly as many in the second half of 2021 as we saw in 2020. So I think, again, it's a clunky market in which supply and demand will rewrite itself by 2022. But this is not a fad. These are not changes that are going to go away, it seems like. These are permanent changes to the way companies are operating, and they will only continue in the future. This is absolutely not a fad. There's almost $35 trillion of assets under management globally in this broad array of categories. And remember, Paul, it's now in every asset class. It's in alternatives. I mean, there's flooding of private equity funds and VC funds that are in this category now. Every big marquee name we know. So many of the mutual funds, again, the big marquee names are offering them. So this is surely not a fad. And as we talked about earlier, the money managers are only responding to the impetus from the investors, whether those investors are large pension funds or individual investors like you and me. We're pushing these markets. And so more and more people want to have their values aligned with how they use their money. And money is wonderful. It brings good things, not only to the individual, but it can bring good things to society and to the environment. And I think that's what more and more people are realizing. And that, you know, even if I were deeply focusing only on myself and my own assets, if I can do well and do good at no cost to myself and get up in the morning and really feel great about what I'm contributing, I don't have to only rely on my charity and my philanthropy to feel that way anymore. And for a lot of people, that's really, really important. And it feels great. Mm. You've served on the boards of some very big companies. And it seems to me that one of the challenges here is that the market has been trained to think in 90-day increments. The expected life of a corporate executive is very short. And so they don't have a lot of time to prove their skill. And if numbers are off for a quarter, their job is at risk. How does the market or how do boards create enough space for leaders to make the kinds of changes that are going to lead to these healthier corporations and a healthier planet and healthier societies while maintaining some degree of accountability? Well, I do think boards are absolutely getting more active in this set of issues. 
I think G will change in the ESG. We're already seeing that where CEOs that are willing to step up and take a stand are actually being rewarded, not punished, both by their boards and by their investors. And that is a relatively new phenomenon, I would say, a kind of post-2020 phenomenon. But we are really seeing that happen, not only in the closed walls of the World Economic Forum or the Business Roundtable, you know, where they were already issuing proclamations that spoke to these kinds of attitudes as early as 2019, but it's been wildly reinforced because of last year. But also we're seeing a different kind of activist investor, and that has the board's attention. It isn't only the activist investor who wants the next quarterly earnings or wants to break up the company in order to increase value. We're seeing, look, engine number one in the last round of annual meetings brought another group, a large group of investors, and put three environmental activists on the Exxon board. So you're going to see a major board transformation. And this category of activist investor believes, as I do, as I've tried to express to you, um, and as so many others do, that you don't have to sacrifice profit for doing good things as well or for not polluting that you really don't have to make that sacrifice. And the data support that. If you were to give some advice to the listener who, let's just say, is a uh, mass affluent investor, not moving millions around with the click of a mouse, but wanted to put their money where their values are, how would you advise them, in addition to reading Making Money Moral, your book, how would you advise them to get smart on this topic? Obviously, there are books uh, such as this, And lots of conversations going on about this as well. But I think doing your own research is always the best way. And the research is readily available. And the most important thing you can do is not be all over the place, but figure out something. Start with one thing that you care deeply about. So let's say I'm a woman, which I am, and I'm interested in improving the lives of girls and women with my investments. So I could invest in an exchange-traded fund, for example. There are many. I'll just give one example. I'm not promoting any, but one called WOMN, Women, which uses the Morningstar gender equity ratings as a way of evaluating companies that go into that ETF. And those that have higher ratings are part of that mutual fund. The carry on that goes back to the YWCA. So you're getting like a triple impact for investing in that ETF. Can you define carry for us, please? The amount that's charged by the actual investment manager rather than going to the investor. Sorry. So I didn't know these words 15 years ago either, I must say. <laughs> Let's say I'm continuing in this category If I want to invest in an angel fund, being a really early stage investor, I could invest only in a company that was started by a woman entrepreneur. If I wanted to be in venture capital or private equity, I could invest only in funds that dealt with women and girls' health. If I cared about girls' education in the developing world, I could buy a government bond that invested in girls' education. 
So I could span asset classes, therefore doing my regular portfolio diversification that all asset managers recommend, but I could stay entirely within the impact and ESG class and entirely within a category that I care deeply about. That's just like one example of how you could get started. And those ETFs should be available from most major brokerage services, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, they started with many of the pension funds and now with where you could elect, but now all the major brokers in the mutual fund and public equity space have it. And increasingly, VC and private equity is creating more access for individual investors as well, not just for a large endowment or a sovereign wealth fund or the like. The REITs are open and available. You know, there are many angel fund groups that surround themselves with a particular issue or a particular type of entrepreneur to invest in. So this is such an open field that with smarts and some diligence, but not like mega hours of library research, one can really develop a strategy. The other thing I would say, Paul, is that The private wealth investors are increasingly getting much smarter in these categories. So we see in many of the largest private wealth, you know, financial advisor category that they are having those conversations with with their investors and giving guidance. So if you trust your financial advisor or have one, you certainly can start with the conversation there. Does the work you're doing make you more hopeful about the future? (laughs) I am an incredible optimist. So I've spent my life being hopeful. And when disappointed, it's really motivated me to work harder to change things. So, yes, first of all, I think this is a very scary time. I think the world is really in turmoil, not only in terms of the environment, but social issues You know, we've never been more divided in the U.S. as a country. All of these things are terribly scary and worrisome. So I'm not naive, but I do think that there are more and more people paying more and more attention to how to really effect change and aren't only relying on governments or elections to do that. And so... My ideal government creates the right ecosystem, you know, the right kind of transparent regulatory framework, doesn't provide subsidies where the private sector ought to come in because that distorts the market and collaborates all the time. You know, we push public-private partnership so much at Rockefeller. We collaborated with companies. We collaborated with governments. Sometimes they were our co-funders. Sometimes they were our grantees. I don't think that we ought to be limited by sector. We ought to work in really constructive ways to evaluate how you produce a tipping point in creating real change. Right now, I don't want my investing in one area to create antibodies for my aspirations for change in other areas. And that's what has happened before. So that's what I think this is trying to fix. The name of the book is Making Money Moral by my guest today, Dr. Judith Roden. Judith, if our listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find that information? 
I have a website, Dr. Judith Roden, so please go on it. You'll find out what I've been doing with my life. And there's all sorts of interesting references to these issues and many, many more that I think you'll find incredibly interesting. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I am very grateful to you for making time to join us today. Thank you so much. It was really, really great being with you. Thank you so much to Dr. Judith Roden for taking the time out of her very busy schedule to join us. Every time I have somebody on as accomplished as she is, I'll say to Stacy, I have a new favorite. And while I'm going to keep shooting for super high level guests like her, she wears the crown this week. She's got the belt. So we'll see who we'll see who will challenge her in the future. Anyway, thank you, Judith, for joining. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Let's go from the high level and the structural and get into the weeds a little bit. I wanted to augment sort of the framework that we laid out here about how people can use money to help create the kind of world they want to see or as an expression of their values and look at a company in one of the spaces that Judith mentioned, the categories where business can contribute to the solution. And this one is in the environment. A couple of weeks ago, I saw an article listed on Facebook because I was spending way too much of my life on Facebook. And I saw this article, a Fast Company article about a company called Blue Ocean Barns that is creating a product that is helping to reduce the amount of methane in our environment. And I won't steal her thunder, but the next guest is the CEO of Blue Ocean Barns, and her name is Joan King Salwin. Joan Salwin, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. Happy to be here. Joan, this episode is all about impact investing. What kind of social impact are you working on at Blue Ocean Barns? We are a Delaware public benefit corporation, and we're dedicated to reducing the greenhouse gas emissions from livestock agriculture. How big a problem is that? It's mighty large. The emissions from a cow annually is the same as from one passenger car. And there are 1.5 billion cows in the world. And so this is a mighty contributor to the crisis we're facing with the planet. How do you address this problem? Do you go and talk to each cow and consult it on its diet, maybe give it a little lactate or something like that? I urge each one to just burp a little bit less, please. Now, we have worked on a feed additive that is essentially a beano for cows, really. It's a (laughs) beano. It's beano for cows. It is a natural photosynthesizing whole plant, just like everything else in the cow's diet but it's grown in the ocean. It's a seaweed that has these compounds in it that during the process of cow digestion, just interrupt the process of the chemical reaction that creates methane gas, which is what really causes the primary problem with livestock agriculture. Who came up with the idea that this seaweed could be used to be the beano for the bovines? Oh, a group of wonky scientists, just like you would think that a group in Australia was looking for a way to solve the Australian problem of seasonal forage. You know, they have a huge beef industry and there are seasons of the year where really there's nothing to feed these guys. And so they were just yanking stuff out of the sea to see what kinds of protein and other attributes some of the seaweeds might have and stumbled upon the fact that this particular seaweed, Asparagopsis, has specialized cells that hold in it these compounds that stop methane. Is it working? Oh, yes, it is working. Yeah, we started really a U.S. proof of concept of the seaweed in 2017, working with the University of California at Davis. And we started in the lab, you know, just trying to to prove the methane reductions using 
beakers and flasks and then graduated up to kind of an artificial rumen, kind of this machine that does in the lab what uh, the digestive system of a cow does on the farm. And we had to do that in order to establish that it was safe for the cow, that there were no unintended consequences in terms of wiping out good bacteria or other kinds of healthful things that happened during digestion. And then in 2018, 2019 and 2020, we fed it to real cows on the university farm. And just this year, as you mentioned, we had our first commercial use of it on a dairy farm in Northern California. And it wipes out 80% of the methane gas from cows and cattle fairly predictably. And the study was done on dairy cows. Does this also work for beef cattle? It does. It works on beef cattle really well. In fact, the results from the steers study that we did at both UC Davis and at another Australian university reduced methane by over 90%. It works really well in both cows and cattle. Does it affect the taste of the beef or milk? No, everyone wants to know that. Does it taste salty, fishy? (laughs) I like Like seaweed. (laughs) Yeah, right. No, if you were hoping for that, you don't get it. It is absolutely chemically indistinguishable, right? It tastes the same. Is anybody not for this solution? I mean, if there's a way to reduce the impact by 750 million cows, that's a win for everybody. Is there anybody who doesn't want this to be a big success? Well, there are trade-offs. Let's say that. First of all, there's a very large livestock drug maker that has made a chemical compound, a pill, a drug that can be fed to cows. It only reduces methane by 20 to 30%. But they've got a lot of money and a lot of voice, and they want their product to be the product. And certainly it can be manufactured in a factory really cheaply and distributed really widely. And they are wanting to get that globally distributed. So, of course, they're not very high on it. And secondly, there are always some consequences of growing things, you know, ecosystem impacts. So, for example... If this were grown in the open ocean, which we're not doing, we're growing it on land-based tanks, but if it were grown in the ocean, it would probably displace some other seaweeds and other fish nesting grounds and things like that inevitably. There's a lot of competition for coastal property. And so, you know, there are a lot of folks who, you know, would rather have the Navy or recreation or other kinds of things at the beach rather than a big seaweed farm. So, you know, there are people like that who have concerns. But most people, as they're learning about how safe this is for the cow and for humans and really for the environment, given the way we're cultivating it, they get on board. They're pretty excited. Did you invest in this business as well? Only as a founder. I did not put my cash in. I just put four years of my life in so far. You're investing human capital to solve a big problem. How big is the business opportunity here? The business opportunity is literally billions of dollars because cows have to eat this every day for their entire lifetime, but every single day they're eating this additive, their impact on the climate is literally negligible. But is the rancher at this point, or the the diarist, I don't know, what what do you call a person who runs a dairy? I don't- Dairy farmer? The dairy farmer. Is the dairy, who's paying for, this is an externality of a business, but they're not paying for it right now, are they? Are they going to be willing to pay for the additive to reduce something that they're not bearing the cost of right now? Well, therein lies the real beauty of this business, because there is a party that does want to pay, and it isn't the farmer, thankfully. So a very large number of enlightened, 
dairy producers, dairy product makers, and beef product makers have made really bold climate commitments very publicly under the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And the Science-Based Targets Initiative commitments that a company makes are only eligible, Paul, within their own supply chain. So they can't offset their pollution by planting trees in the Amazon or participating in another climate program. They have to solve the problem within their own chains. They have to put their own mask on before assisting their child. And so that's really hard if you are a company like Danone or McDonald's or, you know, where a huge portion of the greenhouse gas footprint in your corporation is on the farm. And there previously has been nothing that could be done to solve this problem of digestive methane. And, you know, right now they have been buying carbon credits to offset some of their emissions. And so they're already in the mindset of buying carbon insets, that is carbon emissions within their own chain. So, you know, the cost to the farmer will be either zero or it will be cost neutral. And I say that because there are benefits to the farmer. The burps that come from the digestion of feed are a sign of nutritional waste. That carbon and that hydrogen is leaving the mouth of the cow rather than staying in the digestive system and creating sugars and volatile fatty acids and other kinds of things that help the cow produce more milk and more meat. So as the data becomes more clear about how much benefit the farmer is having, the farmer may well be willing to pay for the additive. But as it is, sponsors will be paying for the additive and asking us to de-risk their achievement of their climate goals and distributing this material within their supply chain. Could it become like an Intel inside thing, signaling to the end consumer that it's a better product because of how the product is made? I don't want to bank on that as our value proposition. There is a segment of the consumer population that would pay more or would shift you know, their buying habits to this product if they knew about it. You know, but right now, like the organic market is only 1% of the total milk market and meat market. So that's mm. not that's not going to get us where we need to be as a company and given our mission to wipe out emissions from livestock agriculture. We need to be in conventional milk and, you know, all sorts of, you know, kind of commodity milk and meat products. So I don't know that we'll ever be visible as a brand and I don't care. I don't care. So Joan, when you take this opportunity to investors and I'll be interested to find out what kind of investors you're talking to, Are they looking at this and evaluating it strictly on financial returns or do they calculate both social impact and financial returns? We are backed by venture capital firms and they are primarily looking at this as a financial investment, but they're using their funds that are earmarked for social good to invest in us as well. They're kind of double bottom line, but both bottom lines matter. So Our investors are interested both in the financial returns and in the social returns. Okay, last question, and this is coming from my wife in reference to her husband. Does this technology have human application? Please pass to your wife. (laughs) Unfortunately, no. No. Unless you have four stomachs, which both cows and cattle do, sheep, goats, buffalo too, this will not cut down your burps. You have a single stomach, so you're going to have to just find a different way. Oh, man. What are those stomachs called? Bicameral? What is it? No, that's the legislation. <laughs> Ruminant. Ruminant. Okay. Yes. Joan, thank you so much for your time. And I was so pleased to hear the good news coming out of Blue Ocean Barns. And I wish you tremendous success going forward. 
Thank you for your support. Thank you, Joan. I'm super excited about the work they're doing at Blue Ocean Barns. And there's hundreds of companies out there looking for solutions to big problems that we have. And it looks like Joan and team over there are off to a really great start. And I am excited about the future of that business. By the way, if you recognize the Salwin name, it might be because Joan's husband, Kevin, was a guest on Crazy Money a year or so ago. He wrote a book called The Suspect, which he talked about. That was about the 1996 Olympic bombing. He also wrote a book called The Power of Half, which tells the story of how the Salwin family, Joan and Kevin, and their children created a plan to sell their large house, downsize, and give half the balance between what the old house cost and what the smaller new house cost they gave away to charity. And so you can see there's a real, really walking the walk at the Salwin house about how to make the world a better place, how to use their time and their resources to improve the world. I'm happy to know them both. Okay, for our final guest today, on the subject of how we can vote with our investments to insist that companies adhere to a certain behavioral standard that on many levels is my old college chum, Peter van der Koch from Amsterdam. Peter has spent many years of his career fighting for a more sustainable economy. Currently, he holds several positions, one of which is the chair of the Dutch Pension Fund Agreement on International Responsible Investment. You'll hear how he describes that work. He is also an independent contractor who works with companies to help them understand how they can achieve both financial goals and ethical operational goals. He's also the executive director and chairman of the board of directors of Ecosystem Restoration Camps, which helps create sustainable agricultural ecosystems around the world where they are threatened. This is Peter van der Gach. Peter van der Gach, welcome to Crazy Money. Did I come close? Yeah, ish. Ish. Van der Gach. You really need to get your gutturals straight. I know. Van der Gach. It's two in a row. The two A's in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to Amsterdam twice in my life. I should know how to pronounce it. I apologize, but I'm going to work on my pronunciation. So full disclosure, Peter and I were college classmates. He is obviously Dutch and has very interesting position that I'd like to ask him to explain. Peter, first, tell me how you came to name your consultancy. Niet onverschillig. How's my pronunciation? Was that better? Was that better? Yes, it's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> not indifferent in English. Not indifferent. I think the quote is Henry David Thoreau. Although if you Google it, there's there's other people being accredited this quote. A different world is not made by indifferent people. The quote that I like a lot. You have to care about something if you want to change things, and you have to commit yourself. So you can't just sit back and see what happens. You have to be different, not indifferent to what's going on, and contribute. And that's what my consultancy's name is, because I strongly believe that most people should be not indifferent to what's going on on this planet. And we should get to work. We can't just let the status quo continue because it's causing severe climate change. The worst extinction crisis since the dinosaurs were hit by a meteor and pollution, poverty, migration flows. Something is afoot on our planet and it's not very good. So we have to figure out what it is and we have to figure out how to move forward into a a world that is hospitable to our species, humanity. And right now we're making one that's not very hospitable to us. So what kind of work specifically do you do to help achieve your goals of non-indifference? In general, I try to make all the sustainability talk accessible to as many people as possible. I've even had a business where uh, we would sell sustainably produced 
products, clothes, cosmetics. Uh, we even had condoms made in a way that doesn't hurt the planet to festival audiences to reach more and more people. So we went to the large music festivals. Then COVID hit and that was not a good idea anymore. And I rekindled my consultancy in helping organizations work with their stakeholders in the best possible way. I was in the board of this uh, initiative on ecosystem restoration. And I'm now one of the uh, directors of this initiative where we are restoring degraded land and aquatic systems and introducing ways of living in them that can be sustainable and actually are more abundant than the way we're currently treating our planet. So there's more food and more material if we learn how to live inside the ecosystem instead of outside of it. And the consultancy since I left college, basically in so-called multi-stakeholder initiatives, these two initiatives that the government has started, I was asked to chair them because I've shown that I can do those things, those difficult different parties together, trying to figure out a route forward. And the pension fund is quite a challenge because it's such a large amount of money, but there is a lot of interest to move there because they're quite long-term focused and these crises are becoming more and more short-term. So what is the goal of the pension fund and how are you helping them meet both their financial and their social responsibility goals? That they have to do themselves. So the goal of the agreement, the signed agreement with all parties, is to implement due diligence processes in deciding how to populate your portfolio. So basically for pension funds, this is deciding what their universe, their possible investment universe should look like. And they have to screen companies on the different UN uh, human rights norms, labor norms, and some environmental norms. And you think that should be possible, but if you're a large pension fund and the largest of the Netherlands is there, there are 6,000 listed stocks in their portfolio. That's quite a challenge. And most of these work with you know, the black rocks of this planet who execute the trades for them. So there's quite a shift there to start to integrate these social norms international social norms and how you make your investment decisions. That's the core intent of the agreement where we've said, okay, you need a lot of information and that information is present at trade unions. They know about labor circumstances in the companies you invest in and NGOs who know about human rights abuses or environmental issues surrounding companies you're investing in. So they've agreed to collaborate and find that information and that information can then be used in establishing that universe. Crucially, what we're saying is don't divest right away, engage. So what we, we have a couple of cases ongoing within the pension covenant right now where NGOs, the pension funds and the trade unions collectively engage with companies that are being invested in to see if any risks are identified or circumstances are identified that you'd want to change because they're not aligned with those guidelines, if they can help that company uh, change that behavior. That's sometimes without success, that's sometimes without success. It depends on how much investable money sat at the table at that time. How do the corporations react when they hear this conversation being broached? Some companies are already working on their own CSR strategies and welcome investors who are open to that and are keen to see those changes take place. Some companies are not inclined to believe they play a role in trying to solve those planetary issues then the engagement doesn't succeed and there is the threat of divestment. Do the executives and boards of these companies care if you divest? What's the risk for them? Is it just a lower stock price? If someone else might be willing to pay, that's the market right now we're in. Hopefully they care and if they don't, uh, you could wonder if that's the type of company you want to invest in because I'm personally convinced that a company that doesn't cover those risks is probably not being managed very well. 
companies that cover their CSR, their environmental and social and governance issues, are probably better managed and hence a more uh, safe investment than the ones who are still ignoring this. What are the changes that companies need to go through when they're screened through the lens of UN human rights and OECD guidelines? So you'd want the company to go all the way down to their chain, their value chain, and see what's going on, what the actual impact on the ground is. You know, many of these are listed companies. They're higher up the food chain in the corporate world. They source their products from others. And you'd want them to engage at that level to see if labor rights, uh, human rights, uh, environmental issues are being handled there. And I think that's the core also of what the engagement is looking for. You'd want the policies in place and you'd want those policies to be implemented. And those are the core questions you ask. You know, when you're talking to a GE or a Nestle, that's the core of what you will ask. And then you'd want to see what they're doing and their own due diligence to bring it down further down their value chain to, in the end, the place where you know, uh, most of the issues take place. The natural stone, that's the one I know best. Here in in the Netherlands, there is no natural stone, so it's all being imported. Who are we importing from? What quarries does that come from? What's going on locally there? And what can we do to change there? That's the question that they're dealing with right now. Where it used to be, I import from A, it's good quality stone, that's it. We're now moving into that space. How is it being produced? How are people being treated in that production process? And is everything according to the norms that we would want to have ourselves to? When you look at multinational corporations that operate in the developing world, some would argue that work standards should be more flexible based on the realities of the economy there and that people that work for substandard wages in the Netherlands, the UK, or the US are actually making a good living for that economy. How do you think through sort of global values and ethics versus local ethics? It's not so much, uh, are they being paid the same as we are? It's called the living wage. Can you maintain yourself on the wage you earn? Uh, that's the key. That's that's currently the thing that everyone's focusing on. And there's calculations, there's tables now that tell you in that particular region, the living wage is this, which is indeed someone in Rajasthan has a much lower living wage than someone in the US would have. That's differentiated already on the theory that in developing countries, you can be a little bit less on the standards because that's the stage of development where they are. All nations who, for example, introduce laws to ban child labor and take kids to school had a faster economic growth than nations who didn't simply because kids were educated And with that education came a higher productivity. Rather send your kids to school if you want to develop a nation than have them in the labor force. But still here in US too and here in Europe, sons and daughters help on the farm. You know, that's perfectly acceptable. It's not acceptable when it's every day, no school in terrible labor circumstances, which is in the garment industry and in in other industries. So the development aspect of that isn't true. And besides, also in those nations, they have, as we have, ascribed to those UN human rights norms and labor standards. Those are across the planet signed by everyone. So they adhere to them too. And in most of those nations, it's illegal to have child labor. It's illegal to have forced labor. It's illegal to pay them less than than the minimum wage. That cultural discussion is, I think, is mute. We've gone past that stage. It is now trying to figure out how the system actually works best. And there's a whole bunch of problems. If everyone gets paid the living wage, prices of clothing will go up. And that has social implications for uh, people who buy clothing. So there's a whole bunch of debate there. But in the end, it's sort of accepted that we shouldn't have a child unpaid 
stitching clothes. How do you think about petrochemicals and petroleum, which is an industry very dear to the Netherlands? If Shell is one of the biggest corporations there, certainly we'd all like to live in a world where we have 100% of our energy provided by renewable resources. But in the short run, a lot of people around the planet drive cars every day and we burn oil to heat our homes. What's the right way to think about that industry? Yeah. And we use plastics, which are fossil fuel based. I have a personal view. In my role as chair of the government, I don't have a view. (laughs) But, you know, in the end, anything non-renewable over an X number of years will no longer be useful. You know, unless you recycle really perfectly, it's going to be gone. So we have to start adjusting as a society and as an economy to one where non-renewables do not play a role. They're by definition not sustainable. If you want humanity to stick around for a couple of hundred more years or a couple of thousand more years, and if you have children, you, you know, you love them, you'd like to have them a good life. There is a point where non-renewables are no longer part of our economy, unless we really know how to stretch it through circularity. So there is a lot of wisdom to look for alternative routes. Renewable energy is still a small percentage. So in the meantime, you want to have the least CO2 impact through energy production. And then everyone says go nuclear, but nuclear is extremely non-renewable, highly expensive, has also no long-term use yet, although there's changes possible there with fusion and thorium nuclear installations. In the end, it doesn't have a future. So it depends on how long your time horizon is. There's not much of a future there. And if you want to move forward on the climate agenda, if you want to move forward on pollution, we need to get rid of fossil fuel-based materials. Biodegradable plastics don't fill our oceans as much as non-degradables do. So personally, that's sunset. That's going to be the end. From an investor perspective, yes, there's still money to be made, but you could wonder how much that's helping move the global economy forwards to that sustainable, renewable one that we absolutely do need. There's no debate. We will run out of stuff after a while. It might not be next year. It could be 100 years from now, but then we'll run out. And when it comes to CO2, we've already run out of the environmental space to hold it. That's why climate is changing. Are you hopeful about the future of capitalism or about the way business is conducted around the world? Uh, <laughs> big question, Paul. I think markets are extremely efficient in getting good ideas to a large amount of people. There, There is quite some discrepancy between wealth. Some people uh, make a lot of money on markets and that's sort of, that's kind of weird about the system with all that extreme poverty. And that's what most people look towards when they criticize capitalism. They look at how the one versus 99% discussion, how that's taking place. I think that's more of a distributive issue than disagreement on if you have a good idea, you can start producing it and you can start reaching markets with that. Then that's sort of the core of capitalism. And I like that idea. Do I think that the focus on shareholder value is currently doing us much good? I don't think so, which is why I'm so pleased with what the covenant is trying to do, the agreement is trying to do. We're looking a bit beyond that, because if you approach purely on shareholder value, any investment in alternative products or sustainability is too much of a cost, unless the product you're making is is running into that wall of just can't be produced anymore because ecosystems are collapsing or, or resources are running out. Then there all of a sudden there's an incentive to change, but by that time it's probably really expensive to look for that change. So from that shareholder value maximization view on capitalism, I think that's a weird approach. And that profit maximization is a weird approach because it means investment is going to be uh, costly and a good company should always invest in new ideas and new products. 
But do efforts like the pension fund agreement and the UN Glasgow Financial Alliance and many others that are going on, are, are these going to improve the way business is done around the world? Well, I don't know if you know the company Unilever, which sure. is a large yeah. food producer. Dove Soap, man. Exactly. A couple of years ago, there, that time CEO Paul Pullman said, I'm going to stop with my quarterly reports to shareholders because I'm finding that I am struggling to maintain my growth rates that you're all expecting, and I need to invest in that sustainable future. I think a person like that, a CEO like that, needs their larger investors to say, we agree that that is needed. And we'll take the lower return now, knowing that in the end, your company will be sustainable and it will be maintaining its return to us. The immediate sharks who want high returns now are the problem then. It's 1.6 trillion US dollars, 1.4 trillion euro. That amount of money saying, hey, we're open to these discussions now is a very good signal to CEOs who are saying, I'm stuck in the shareholder maximization lap uh, race, this race. If I really care about my company and I'm not just the manager of the current status quo, but I'm a leader and I want something to change, then I need funders like that who are saying, we'll support you on that route and we'll engage with you. And that is an important step forward. Well, we'll leave it there. Peter van der Hach, thank you so much for your time. It's good to see you again, man. Thanks for your time. It's good to see you too.